The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr stepping down as chairman of the all-important intelligence panel. Meanwhile, President Trump heads to Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our very own Bloomberg opinion columnist Eli Lake is going to be weighing in on both fronts. All of that plus General Flynn. We've got some new polls out from Morning Consult. Eli Yokely, political reporter for Morning Consult, is going to break down. Do Republicans want to wear masks? Do Democrats want to go back to work? We're going to ask him all of the polarizing questions and what it all means for Joe Biden with these new Tara Reid allegations. Have they had any impact? on the 2020 race and we check in in with in the battleground state of wisconsin we've got the chairman of the wisconsin democratic party ben wickler he's going to phone in as well to tell us about what's going on over there we continue the conversation as we've been having this week and dabbling into the issue of contact tracing is it the future way to keep us safe to get americans back to work or is it a scene out of George Orwell's 1984? Lots to get through. We're running all the topics. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Did you see the big story today? Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr. He's out. He's out. And he's the Republican chairman of Senate Intel. He's gone. He's stepping down. And Dianne Feinstein, Senator Democrat from California, she's talking with the FBI about her husband's stock trades. I was going to talk about General Flynn with Eli Lake, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, but Eli, my friend, thank you for joining us. I mean, what do you, what, what do you, I got to get your take on Burr and Feinstein. Well, we had a, I mean, we now know that there's an FBI investigation into the suspicious sale of stocks. Um, that uh, Richard Burr made apparently after receiving um, an intelligence briefing. Uh, he sold many uh, before uh, we all sort of you know, absorbed how bad the coronavirus pandemic was. And so as somebody who is now under federal investigation, I think he has now recused himself from the um, Senate Intelligence Committee where he was the chairman. And just to put this in perspective for us, I mean, Eli, like no one knows the intel world better than you. To put this in perspective for us, this is massive. I mean, this is a huge deal. Um, I think it is. I mean, I think it's a big deal. I do think that it's not an intel story per se. It's, it's you know, if, if indeed it's, the charges are correct and he's, and this is an example of corruption, then, you know, he may have violated a law. 
And, uh, you know, I don't think his political prospects are that great right now. Um, it should be said that, you know, the Senate Intelligence Committee is producing, I guess, its final report uh, on the Russia-Trump stuff. Um, they, they like, earlier this month or last month, it's hard to keep track of the days, they came out with the, their fifth report, which confirmed uh, what almost everybody knew, which is that Russia did indeed uh, interfere in the 2016 election. They hacked emails, and um, they supported the intelligence community judgment that they did so to benefit Donald Trump. There are people in MAGA land who are, have a problem with that. I know that the House Intelligence Committee did not, you know, found that there was other intelligence that didn't support that. I don't think you need access to state secrets to uh, understand that if the Russians hacked Trump's opponent and then helped publicize those emails, which they did, then they were favoring Trump. It doesn't. It, what what has never been what has not been proved, despite uh, on the other side of this, is that there was any coordination or conspiracy between Trump and the Russians on that. The closest that we've come on that is that there were some communications between Roger Stone and WikiLeaks. Um, which is not only not a crime, but doesn't really tell us a whole lot about the initial theories of collusion, which have been discredited. So, and just to, to, to be clear here, he's still going to be on the committee, but when the FBI is investigating the head of the, <laughs> of the Senate Intelligence Committee, not a good look for, for uh, Senate Intel Committee Chairman Richard Burr. Okay, moving things along to, to Michael. That's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> moving things along, you've got this great piece out on Bloomberg Opinion. You write, quote, ever since Michael Flynn resigned as President Donald Trump's national security advisor three years ago, the president and his allies have taken a keen interest in the practice of unmasking. Now his administration has revealed the names of the Obama officials who learned Flynn's name in intelligence reports, but the information is hardly a smoking gun. Okay, you always call it like it is, especially on matters pertaining to all of this stuff, for lack of a better word. So this issue of unmasking, what, what is it going to move the needle at all? Obviously, Republicans are talking about it. Uh, what explain this and, and why it's important for this for the dynamics of our current political system? Well, just as a to to I was I think the first person to write about that Susan Rice had made dozens of unmasking requests back in 2017, and I always thought this was an interesting story because you know I'm a bit of a civil libertarian, and if you have protections against you can't have warrantless wiretapping uh, anymore, at least of Americans. So when their phone calls are caught up in the surveillance of usually a foreign target, then their names for when their intelligence reports are distributed in intelligence community are anonymized, they're blacked out. And then a senior official can request the name of the U.S. person, uh, and that's called unmasking. So it's a little bit misleading in that it wasn't that, you know, the 39 senior officials who were on this list of who made these requests didn't say, can I see Mike Flynn's name? They said, this is an interesting conversation. Who is the U.S. person? And it turned out to be Mike Flynn. Now, I think that that's, it tells us a lot that, you know, lots of people who are outside of the intelligence community were on this list, including Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough, Vice President Joe Biden, uh, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power. And at least I did not know that 
those kinds of officials usually made these kinds of unmasking requests. There was a mini controversy many years ago during the George W. Bush administration when it came out in uh, John Bolton, remember him, his yeah. <laughs> confirmation hearing to be the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, that he had made some unmasking requests. I think there were three unmasking requests, and it was treated as a huge scandal at the time because the question was, why is John Bolton, who is the undersec- was undersecretary of state for arms control and nonproliferation, why was he at that time, you know, trying to find out the identities of U.S. citizens in these intelligence reports? And uh, that was one factor that led to uh, him failing to get that nomination. Fast forward, and we find out that there were 39 officials who ended up making these requests having to do with Flynn, and I'm told that there were lots more. Now, if you look at the raw numbers that have been published by the NSA, it looks like 2016 there you know, weren't as many unmaskings as there were, say, in 2018. But that doesn't really tell us a lot, because the question is, you know, why were these sort of non-intelligence officials asking for all that? Yeah. All of that said... Oh, I'm sorry. Did we got to go? No, go ahead. Got the 20 okay. seconds. Go ahead. All, okay. All that said, none of this tells us who leaked Flynn's name in January 2017. And that's, that's what we want to know. That's the abuse of power. Not And the unmasking could help us find that out, but we don't know the context of these intercepts and whether this was the famous call yeah. that Flynn had with Kislyak, the Russian ambassador. Eli Lake, thank you so much. That's that. It's right there. More next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. Friday Eve, folks, hang in there. We're getting through another week of the pandemic. Another week. Uh, President Trump in Allentown, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, back in my old neck of the woods, uh, Touring a plant, talking about reopening the economy. When will it reopen? Pennsylvania, of course, a key battleground state, key, key battleground state in the 2020 election. Coming up later on in the program, we're going to talk with Eli Yokely, political reporter for Morning Consult. He's following all of the polls, Trump, Pence, Mask, Republicans, Democrats, unmasking. Our Eli Lake gave us the download on the unmasking issue. New numbers on the impact coverage of the Tara Reid allegations have had on Joe Biden. But I want to stick with another battleground state. First time on the program, Ben Wickler, chairman of the Wisconsin Democrat Party. Ben, have you been able to get any fried cheese curds since this thing started? No, and it kills me. It kills I me, too. I missed I miss the cheese curds. Some cheese curds. Yeah, that stinks. You got to get some curbside, Ben. <laughs> it's true. Curbside curbs. That's, right. uh, someone can start a business just for that. <laughs> All right. So the Supreme Court just struck down the state's stay-at-home order. Uh, and I- I'm curious what you make of that, number one. And, and how's it, how's, how are things looking out in Wisconsin with the reopening or, or the shelter in place? Give us the lowdown. So Wisconsin had been doing things that were working. We you know, had a pretty hardcore safer at home order it was called here in our state and case counts have been going down hospitalizations have been going down testing capacity have been going up contact tracing have been going up uh, we actually had reached five out of six conditions for phase one of our phased reopening that the governor had set out and then the republicans in our state legislature 
uh, sued to our state Supreme Court, and we have a very partisan kind of polarized state Supreme Court where uh, four of the conservative justices uh, decided to strike down the Department of Health Services authority to have any kind of emergency order that that might uh, supersede other laws. Uh, One of the Republican uh, justices actually crossed over and joined the more progressive uh, Supreme Court justices and said that this was judicial activism and had no basis in law. But nonetheless, the Supreme Court decision went through, and instantly all of the the stuff that was keeping people safe uh, fell down. Last night, the Tavern League of Wisconsin, which is the association of bars and and taverns and and restaurants, uh, they uh, put out word you can reopen immediately, and bars did. I was talking to uh, a state representative today who told me that in his hometown, there were standing room only crowds in the bars. Wow. Uh, There are at least, yeah, I mean, all over the state. So individual counties and cities now are making their own rules. Madison and Milwaukee both said, you can't reopen yet. You know, we're going to reopen with limited capacity down the road. But but it was the Wild West. And there are photos and videos online of people packed, yeah. you know, elbow to elbow. I It makes me just gravely concerned for what's going to happen to coronavirus in the state. And to me, this is this is politics going too far. It's politics trying to trump science. Unfortunately for, for us, science always wins that fight. Well, I uh, find I, it I think... fascinating. Ben, uh, Ben's on the, uh, ben Wickler's on the line. There it is, Kevin Cerulli. Ben Wickler's on the line. He's the chairman of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. Uh, and we're talking about the, the Supreme Court of the state striking down uh, the state's stay-at-home order uh, and and I mean, when I saw the images of these packed bars in the state of Wisconsin, I, I mean, you know, Governor Larry Hogan, Republican from Maryland, I mean, he's easing some of the restrictions on Friday, but he's still saying the advisory is a stay at home order. I got to be candid here. I mean, it is no one that I talk with on either side of the aisle is saying go run into a packed bar. It, I mean, it's it's remarkable. It really is. And frankly, even the Republicans in the state legislature were asking for a stay of of seven days to try to reach some kind of deal. What the Supreme Court did was eliminated all the safer at home orders and then said to create any new ones, it requires the Republican-led state legislature to sign off on rules proposed by the executive branch. Now, that is not a situation any other state is in. Normally, you empower the executive to make emergency decisions. Um, but in this case, the state legislature wanted to have a veto over public health measures and asked for a little extra time, and the, the Supreme Court didn't even do that. Uh, the, the, wow. the strike down went into place immediately, and it's, it is a dangerous situation out there. Uh, the governor said on TV last night, it's the Wild West. Everyone, you know, there, there are essentially no rules. Uh, and individual cities and counties are trying to come up with their own rules in the in the absence of any guidance from the state. Well, the, the domino effect that this could have on other states, uh, as you've got uh, Tony Evers, the Wisconsin governor, uh, it, it, it's it's really, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess we're living in unprecedented times. Uh, ben, let me ask you just in the couple minutes that we have left, Ben Wickler, he is the chairman of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. Uh, let me ask you about the 2020 race. Uh, of course, Wisconsin such a key battleground state uh, for Joe Biden and for President Trump. What, what's the latest? What are you hearing? The most recent public polling from the Marquette University Law School is that Joe Biden is three points ahead in the must-win battleground state of Wisconsin. And that's actually pretty consistent with what we've seen for a while. He has had an edge here. And I I think it reflects the fact that a lot of folks have gotten really nervous about how Trump is handling the the coronavirus pandemic. 
That said, this state is going to be close. And, you know, anyone who, um, like me, doesn't think Trump deserves another four years in the White House really has to throw themselves into organizing, into contributing, uh, contacting uh, folks they are in relationship with by text and email, because we're going to need every absentee ballot we can possibly find. And I know that the Trump campaign is pouring resources and energy into the state, too. Uh, the whole election could hinge on what happens in Wisconsin. And that's why we're organizing at a level we never had before this early. Uh, and I'm in Madison. Uh, right now, we're going to have turnout through the roof here, and we're going to be organizing in rural areas, suburbs, and cities across the state. It's so fascinating to talk to someone where like things are reopened, because here in Washington, D.C., everything is shut down, and it continues to be shut down. In the minute that we have left, I do want to ask you, uh, what are you hearing from your constituents about how China is going to play in this race? Because we always cover trade on this program, and Wisconsin such a key trade state. Uh, what, are you, how, wh- what are they saying about China? There was this long period where the pain of the trade war with China was just hammering, especially farmers and manufacturers in our state. We lost thousands of manufacturing jobs before COVID. And the idea was that there would be a light at the end of the tunnel when when President Trump cut his deal with China. And the light has been completely extinguished. China is not importing U.S. agricultural product, products right now. Uh, there's an economic freefall there. So it is really yeah. a... a uh, you know, football pulled away from Charlie Brown situation, yep. and folks are folks are fed up. Uh, this is a yep. a I think it's a tough road for Trump, and uh, folks are ready for change. Ben Wickler, chairman of the Wisconsin Democrat Party. Hey, go eat a fried cheese curd. Find one, okay? Because I need them, and they don't have them in DC. Thanks for listening. Uh-huh. More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I love that song. Little U2. Little U2 on a Friday Eve. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You know, I was up on Capitol Hill, uh, when was it, yesterday, uh, interviewing Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio. He's the one who refuses to wear a mask uh, during the hearings. And I asked him about it, and he says he believes that everyone should be back in the halls of Congress, that they should all be there. No more virtual hearings. He wants everyone back. He wants, he wants lawmakers back. He wants them, you know, passing bipartisan legislation to hammer home against China. Uh, and it got me thinking just about how the mask has become such a polarizing issue. Eli Yokely's on the line, good friend of the program, political reporter for the Morning Consult. Eli, when did the mask get so political? Hey, Kevin, it's good to hear from you. Um, look, it. <laughs> Everybody says maybe that not, nowadays. It, it, it's like I'm still here. I mean, go ahead. We're, we're, all, we're all still alive. <laughs> no, it's a. Uh, I, I don't know how political it is right now. I mean, we we just it's pretty political this, this when you've got lawmakers saying they're not going to wear it because they don't believe that things should work. The whole saga with Pence. It's a the mask is political, Eli. Well, listen, when you talk to, to voters, and we talked to 2,000 this week, we found that about 7 in 10 um, think the president and Mike Pence should be wearing face masks, including about 6 in 10 Republicans. And so 
look, when you listen to the American people on this, they're pretty sold on the idea that when Mike Pence and Donald Trump are traveling across the country, as they're talking about doing, I know Donald Trump's out in, in Pennsylvania today, they want to see him wearing a mask. I, I think it's a big question looking forward to some of these rallies and stuff that Trump is talking about, or at least some of the public events that he's doing. Um, this idea of whether or not he should be wearing a mask when he's in these big crowds of, of people. Um, there are some there are some differences among Democrats and Republicans when it comes to their effectiveness, though. Um, we found, but it's not big, right? Still, about three and four Republicans say they think masks are effective compared to 85 percent of Republicans. So, uh, when you talk to voters, when you talk to people out in the country, uh, this uh, this controversy that's playing out among some folks in Washington is not quite breaking through. Well, what is breaking through? Is it Tara Reid? What's breaking through? Um, we're seeing Tara Reid breaking through at some point on, on Joe Biden. Um, it's hard to get stuff to break through right now. Um, if you turn on TV, as you know, or you not turn on the radio, I mean, all the talk in the media is about the coronavirus. And um, somehow, uh, some way, the story about Tara Reid has broken through to voters. We've seen about 64% have heard something or a lot about Joe Biden's denial and her claims. And so, um, and, and you've seen that reflected in his favorability rating. And we, we saw, saw notable drops um, across the board, but particularly um, interesting to us among women, including those um, 30 to 65-year-olds who, who are called suburban moms sometimes, who, who were a big uh, factor in Democratic victories um, last time around. Um, but at the same time, I mean, the, the, the presidential race is pretty flatline right now. I mean, it's not been good or bad for Donald Trump. It's been pretty equal as we've gone through the, the coronavirus outbreak. Have you guys done any polling on mail-in voting? There's been so much talk recently about whether or not we should change the way that we vote. Other states have, you know, kind of been grappling with this. But as we head in to November, uh, and hopefully that there, that this pandemic clears up by then and that doesn't come back in the fall, but are voters even aware of that? Is that on their radar yet? Um, we, we have looked at this, and it's something that's pretty popular. I mean, this is one of those things that on TV and in Washington uh, seems pretty controversial. But when you ask folks out in the country about it, uh, it's it's not as divisive. Um, we, we pulled on this earlier this month and found uh, just over half of Republican voters support allowing um, mail-in voting this year um, or generally, and that it went up 10 points, um, asked just about the pandemic. This is not a controversy uh, when we tested it that it has broken through to folks. Are you there? Eli, do we still have you or do we lose Eli? I am here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah. Oh, I was just I was just saying this is one of those controversies that has not broken through to folks. Uh, the fact that most Republicans support it um, in our polling um, and that even more support it uh, during a pandemic, um, I think, says, says quite a bit about it. I mean, this is a very popular a proposal that, that folks are talking about. Okay, and here's where I want to take the rest of this segment because you guys did a poll that really got my attention about China. And what you found is that three in four Americans, three in four Americans blamed the Chinese government, the Communist Party of China, for America's high death rate in uh, due to COVID-19. So when you break this down amongst Republicans, it's 80%. But I want to look at Democrats because I don't think that the media is paying enough attention to this, to be candid, and I probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, 71% of Democrats blame China, the Chinese government. They, don't, they blame the Chinese government, Xi Jinping's government, 
uh, for the high death rate of COVID-19. 71 Democrats, 71 Democrats, and all adults at 73%. That's fascinating. That's fascinating, and that's why the senior policy advisor to Joe Biden's presidential campaign gave an interview to Reuters earlier this week and said that the Biden campaign is putting together a list of policies for how they would deal with Xi Jinping, Eli. Big deal. Um, you know, whenever you ask about blame and sort of a head-to-head question, um, more voters generally blame China than blame Donald Trump for the spread of coronavirus in the United States. This is clearly uh, something that, that is uh, that's on the minds of the American people and something that we've seen Donald Trump leaning into with his campaign. I mean, I, I think this week they had an event, they called it Beijing Biden, the Trump campaign did, trying to attack uh, Joe Biden for being soft on on China, they're dishing it back at the president in terms of this coronavirus. You know, before response. I came on air, I spoke to a senior source in the Trump political reelection uh, campaign who really hammered that point home. And that's going to that onslaught, I can tell you, is only just beginning uh, to increase, especially uh, in terms of going through the Biden world record. I mean, I talked to Democratic strategists who say that they're willing to have that debate every single day of the week. But I want to move away from politics for a second, because earlier this week I was at the State Department and I interviewed the Undersecretary of Economic Affairs, Keith Kroc, and he foreshadowed what President Trump said on Fox Business Network earlier today. And this has significant market implications, which is all of those Chinese businesses that are trading on the U.S. exchanges that don't have to go through something, oh, I don't know, called Sarbanes-Oxley, that they're going to be taking a look at that and whether or not that is going to be okay. So from a broader standpoint, when you've got Biden world forecasting that they're going to put out a policy propo- proposal that's more, sig- that's more uh, tough on China, and you've got the Trump administration now openly floating some financial reforms, coupled with the nonpartisan issue as it relates to higher education, diversifying the U.S. supply chain, and pushing for international standards from Europe to try to get the Europeans back on the same page to disentangle on 5G from China, uh, Italy. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite telling that from a longer-term U.S. perspective, Democrats and Republicans have a lot more in common in putting the focus on China than I think uh, gets reported sometimes, Eli. Yeah, I mean, we saw that um, we've, we've seen people talking on both sides for a few years now about how this is a rival to watch. Um, and, and I think voters are taking note of all this talk. Um, this is going to be a, a big deal in the, in the campaign. Um, the, the point that the Biden people make that I think is interesting and, and, and Democrats generally have been making is um, to try to nip this in the bud is to blame Trump for the early failures in the response to coronavirus. I mean, they're shifting a lot of the focus there, and they're not really blaming China in that. They're they're putting this all on Donald Trump's plate. Um, I mean, and research shows how significant his um, his his uh, his words and his actions have been in this. And we've seen pulling in, in our shop, noting the increase in fears among Americans generally and among Republicans in particular. Uh, whenever Donald Trump said something about coronavirus, it wasn't until he uh, declared a national emergency that we saw fears surge in a big way. Um, and so um, you've got two competing things here going on. Where, uh, on one hand, Democrats are sort of leaning into some of this China talk. And on the other hand, they really want to put this at the feet of the president. Yeah, great. Well said, Eli Yokely. 
political reporter for Morning Consult. Hey, Morning Consult, shaking things up. Appreciate you coming in to or coming on to, to break down all of the latest polls on masks, on China, and of course on Tara Reid. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. We talk artificial intelligence and contact tracing. Coming up next on Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. You know, I've been trying to wrap my head around all of these reports of contact tracing and artificial intelligence. You know, is it George Orwellian or is it the future? Is it going to keep us safe? How do we balance that with civil liberties and freedoms and all of this, you know, especially in democracy? Richard Wang's on the line. He's the CEO of Coding Dojo. Uh, And you know he's been everywhere, and and the you know I, and I I've I've a lot of uh, a lot of questions for you, Richard Wang. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Hey Kevin, thank you so much for having me on the program. Excited so, to be here. Well, first of all, explain to our audience before we talk about coding dojo. Explain to me precisely what contact tracing is and what it isn't, because I think a lot of people hear horror stories, and I want to know what it is, especially if it's gonna you know help us beat COVID nineteen. Exactly. You know, you know how, uh, you know, I think we're all pretty much aware how COVID-19 spreads among the people. And sometimes it can be in the air, the droplet, just by, you know, your close contact talking to someone. And so essentially contact tracing is essentially if someone has this virus and starts spreading out, can we start to find all the people who are the source of the individual and all the people that the individual have touched so that we can contain the virus within this human chain of, uh, from spreading even further? Okay, so how do you do that, though? Because what if I came into contact with someone and I don't want people to know I came into contact with them? I mean, that's my right to privacy, is it not? You know, that's a great question. I think it, this is, I think this, it is more than just a technology challenge we're facing with. It's also, uh, you know, privacy as well. You know, the, the, the day and age we're living right now, you know, just going back to six months, 12 months ago, we are seeing Facebook and Hot Waters talking about privacy, selling people's data. So I think there is a lot of public trust issues with, you know, privacy, per, personal data. Okay, so when we talk about issues like contact tracing and apps that are going to potentially be in, in the, uh, in in the works, how would that work in an American legal system? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. And at first, I think you know. Um, we can use AI and machine learning to help us contact trace. And first, let me just say, uh, what is AI? Because to a lot of listeners or people, that may seem like a, a black box. So, you know, at least from my definition. They think it's a robot. Exactly. <laughs> it is not a robot, right? It is not a robot. It's really just computer software. So, for example, um, when we think of AI and machine learning, the broad definition often you will see is that, you know, it, it's it's 
AI or machine learning works by combining large amount of data inputs, you know, with computer processing and computer algorithms, a lot of software to learn automatically, you know, from patterns or features in the data and the outputs will help us to make better decisions about the outcome of certain things. And I think, you know, how do I, how do I put that into perspectives? I'll give you one example. So there's a great Boston startup called BioHealth. And BioHealth is an AI health assistant. The, the health assistant talks to people every few seconds, and the majority of the conversation are with patients within 12 hours of having a symptom, you know, uh, even two to three days before they even see a doctor or get tested. So this data allows the company to see the hotspots of the search, and based on the conversation, text analytics, to see the hotspots before it even happens. So that's one of the great examples. Wait, wait, wait. So how would with, that – slow down, slow down, slow down. Ta- ta- yeah, ta- sure. Yeah. So how would that work if you're able to see the hotspots? I mean, that would that would be an incredible leap forward if there was technology that would be able to say, hey, wait a minute, let's let's try to see exactly where this hotspot is. Because then we could start to treat these outbreaks as if they were storms, as if it was a weather map, as opposed to one blanket shutdown for an entire world. Am I wrong or am I missing something? No, I think that's a great point. It's that, you know, how do we deal with based on geolocation by geolocation? Because a lot of symptoms are based on, you know, uh, geo-bounded areas. And so I think, you know, just in terms of how does this work, essentially, you know, um, BioHealth is, is a telehealth, um, you know, app that people can go onto the, to the app and talk to this uh, AI assistant and just talk about, you know, I have this I have this specific symptom and what's the likelihood I will have COVID-19 and whatnot. And so um, it's it, it able to predict, you know, based on the search and the volume in a g- given geolocation, and then you match the CDC, uh, CDC, like, you know, outbreak map. And then I think they have done a pretty good job pretty accurately matching to where things are happening. So they are able to, based on this data points and the volume of what people are looking for, they are able to predict where the next hotspots are. That's just surely based on volume. Yep. And so, and that would be able to, to, to predict, I guess, where the flow of a virus or the spread of a virus is going. If the epicenter, for example, is in New York City, when it might penetrate into uh, another city. And that could, again, be able to predict what hospitals would be able to handle, what they would not be able to handle. And all of that, as you're telling me, is driven on this idea of artificial intelligence and contact tracing. How then does it collect data, though? This is, and okay, so I understand how it works now, Richard Wang, but I don't understand right. how it collects data. And explain this as slowly as you can, because it's complex. Yeah, I think, you know, there are a couple solutions out there in terms of data collection for contact tracing. For example, Google right now, or even MIT right now, they are talking about how can we can use Bluetooth technology to uh, collect data on contact tracing. And so I would take a, I would take a, let me just take a second to explain what Bluetooth technology is. You know, Bluetooth technology Bluetooth is Bluetooth is how I listen know, to my headphones when I'm on my run. Exactly. I get the Bluetooth, but exactly. I want to know, yes. hold on, because I, I want to pin you down. I, I want to I get an answer out of you on this. How yep. how would it work? How would you know from my device on my phone who I've been in contact with? Right. So, you know, Bluetooth technology essentially works by using a short-range wireless communication uh, technology to connect two devices together. This eliminates the need for cables or wires, as you said. And it works by sending a random stream of numbers via this low-power Bluetooth from user's smartphone to the other nearby devices using the system. 
and create a coded nest of smartphones that a given user has been close to in the past 14 days. And then if the user subsequently tests positive for COVID, he or she can upload upload that list of numbers to a database on the cloud, for example, so that other uh, users can run a check to determine whether they might have the whether they might have been exposed exposed to this virus or not. But, but see, do you have to that, uh, do you get the wait because that's a little that's Orwellian. People would could argue that that's Orwellian. Do you have the do does an individual have the right to opt in or opt out of whether or not they want to share that information? I, I think we better create a opt-in system. Otherwise, I think that that will be a major, you know, uh, privacy issue that they have to deal with. But on the other hand, you know, if you only get people opt-in, you may have uh, self-selection bias in the process, and so you may not get accurate as well. So it is a, you know, a privacy, you know, uh, paradigm that we have to think about. I mean, this is more of a uh, issue that everybody's dealing with right now. It is a fascinating issue. In China, I don't think they have that. They have that debate, do they? Uh, no, I mean, I, it's definitely a different system. So, but that, I mean, but that right there is 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 fascinating. I mean, weighing the different privacy issues with, uh, with how how that fits in in the Western world, how that fits in America. I mean, that's literally going to be, I think, a debate that we're having in the in the judicial system and the at the election during elections for quite several times to come. Listen, I really want to thank you because I, I this is a very confusing issue and there's so much out there on it, but I have a much better understanding now of how contact tracing works. It relies on Bluetooth technology, your phone picking up signals from other phones and this whole debate of privacy. And it's one that we're going to be having for quite a long, long time. Richard Wang, CEO of Coding Dojo and an MIT sector practice leader for future of work and education at the Martin Trust Center, uh, talking about uh, opening America back up again through the use of artificial intelligence, contact tracing, and technology. That does it for me. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Have a great rest of your evening. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg 991. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.